between the two islands of Geyser Rock and Dyer Island, near the small town of Hansby in South Africa, lies one of the deadliest stretches of water in the world, Shark Alley, home to a large population of great white sharks. But in recent years, the great whites seem to have vanished. Welcome to Shark Week, the podcast. I'm Luke Tipple, marine biologist and a frequent voice on my favourite things, oceans and sharks. I'm stoked to bring the magic of Shark Week right to your ears. Sharks have been a big part of my life for over 20 years now, studying them and diving with them all around the world. I guess that's given me some of the street cred to participate in many Shark Week documentaries throughout the years and now to be your host. So whether you've never seen Shark Week before or you've been a diehard fan over the 30-plus years it's been around, this podcast is for you. Today, I'm thrilled to say we're joined by marine biologist and great white shark expert Alison Towner and marine biologist and shark nutritionist Lee Denecker, two of the stars of Shark Week documentary Shark Women Ghosted by Great Whites. How you doing, guys? Hi, Luke. We're really well. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing really well, Alison. It's great to chat to you again. And Lee, are you there? Thank you so much for having us. Looking forward to chatting. Of course. Well, uh, thank you both for the show. I watched it and uh, I got to tell you, it came out really well. I really enjoyed it. And I love the whole theme of, you know, shark women putting together a team and you guys going out there and you guys crushed it, obviously, and found a lot of really cool stuff. Um, You guys have fun making it? Oh, it was was so incredible uh, getting to work with Ali, who's been a friend of mine and colleague for a very long time was just I mean I learned so much from her every day and we had so much fun and then having Zandile as well was the first time I'd met her just an incredible human and oh, I, I must admit it probably goes down as one of the coolest experiences of my life it's safe yeah. to say that and Alison you were uh, kind of in charge of putting the team together is that right um, well, I guess we, uh, like Lee said, we all go back, we're, we're good friends, and we, we talked about our wish list of what we wanted to do if, if Shark Week ever gave us an opportunity to, to, to have a show, and yeah, this was this was perfect for us. We were thrilled to, to you know, just have the platform to get out there and, and go on this adventure, and, and as Lee said as well, it's kind of... Um, it's a bit of a first, right? We, like we, we, uh, we all go way back, but we haven't actually been together on a show before. So it was, yeah. I also feel so humbled because you know it's not often that I get my friends on camera with me, kind of thing. That is definitely cool when you just get to call out friends and say, "All right, when you go have this amazing adventure." And even just watching the beginning of the show, I mean, you guys are under the water, on the water, above, in the air, kind of all over the place, diving with great whites, watching them jump. I mean, you, you packed a whole lot in the uh, in the hour long show, but. Um, Lee, I actually want to start with you because your title, at least in the show, and it might be a little tongue-in-cheek, but your title is Shark Nutritionist, which I think is one of the coolest job titles I've ever heard. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I did my master's degree focusing on the diet of the great white shark in false bay specifically. And I also looked at the diet of another species that's an apex predator in in false bay known as the broadnose sevengill. So with some really, really interesting findings from that research, um, it, yeah, I suppose it, it led me to have that title and I, I absolutely love it. And getting more insight into shark diet and obviously having Ali, which who focuses on their movement, it, it makes us quite a, quite a nice team to look at 
what the sharks are doing in our South African waters. Yeah, and what are the actual practical applications for knowing what a shark eats in, you know, conservation sense or scientific sense? Like what what can we learn and know and, and you know, make better or do differently? So, um, well, firstly, I'll just give you a little bit of background as to how we find out what sharks eat. Please. We used to use uh, stomach contents. So that would mean typically having a dead shark, which is not ideal for research. You don't, you don't want to be killing these animals to learn about them unnecessarily. So we use what is called a stable isotope analysis. And all that involves is getting a small piece of tissue from the animal. So we used um, blood as well as muscle tissue. And you don't need any more than about the size of a small fingernail, just a muscle biopsy from the shark. And then you need muscle from the potential prey items that they could be eating. Then long story short, you compare the muscle of the shark with that of its prey and you can get good insights into what they're eating. So essentially it's based on the idea that you are what you eat. So the samples go into a big fancy machine, spits out a bunch of data and then I analyze that and I can tell you what the shark is eating, the percentage of that particular species in their diet and also the position in the food web that the the shark may hold. So you can get incredible insights just by looking at a small piece of muscle from the shark. And that, again, advantage is that you don't need to have dead animals. So to answer your next question, the application of this, anything we can learn about sharks, any research, the more we know about them, the more we can contribute to their conservation. So if we know what they're eating, we can have a good idea of what other species are important, what species we need to protect beyond just the, the apex predator. We can highlight important hunting grounds for them and look at setting up potential marine protected areas around those around those sites. Um, yeah, so everything we, the more we learn, the more opportunity we have to contribute to conservation. And, and that's the application for not only shark nutrition, but all aspects of shark research. Yeah. Now, with your research, what was one of the more surprising things that you found? I mean, we've all seen sharks jumping out of the water chasing fur seals, but were there things in their diet that you, you were kind of like, huh, I didn't really realize that? Um, well, like I said, my research focused on two species. So I looked at the two apex predators being the white shark and the broad-nosed seven-gill shark in False Bay. And what was really interesting was that the broad-nosed seven-gill shark, I don't know if you know what it looks like, but it's a very prehistoric-looking animal. It looks like a big, smiley dinosaur. You wouldn't really expect them to be these apex predators if you look at a white shark and compare it to a seven-gill and the way the white shark launches itself out of the water to catch a seal. It's just, you don't really know how the seven-gill compares. But what I found was the seven-gill actually holds has more seal in its diet than a white shark does. Um, so essentially, if you had to look at it from a stable isotope point of view, the seven-gill shark is at a higher level in the food chain than the great white, which doesn't really make sense, but it seems that it's because they are eating more seal than the great white. And this is likely because they eat seal more consistently, whereas great whites focus on eating seal seasonally. And it would be quite interesting to see how much that has changed now. Obviously, we're probably going to go into a little bit more with Ali as to how everything's changed. Um, I'm, I'm talking this 
research was done a couple of years ago, so it would be interesting to to relook at it and see if it's changed now that white sharks are being pushed away from seal colonies for extended periods of time. But nothing too out of the ordinary in the diet, nothing we, um, no humans, you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> but yeah, fascinating nonetheless. I, I, I think we definitely need to see now the broad-nosed seven gills going after seals. Like one way, shape or form, we need to figure out how to capture that footage because it sounds pretty cool. So that is definitely high on the list of things yeah. to see. So it, it is likely that they are um, predominantly nocturnal hunters and being able to try witness sharks hunting at night is, is already a challenge in itself. But as to if we, again, like I said, how a great white has to launch itself completely out of the water to catch a seal, how this broad-nosed sevengill is doing it, it's difficult to say. Um, there are theories that it could be scavenging, but there's too much seal in their diet to suggest that it's only scavenging. So there is likely active hunting taking place. So yet another mystery in the shark world needing to be solved. Maybe Shark Woman 2 can look into that. I oh, love it. We'll <laughs> definitely have to do that. Uh, Alison, uh, why don't you take us through the setup of Shark Women? Like, uh, you have a very special connection to this area and to some particular sharks. Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing that has been highlighted in the in the press quite a lot the last couple of years is how South Africa's white sharks have vanished or how they've disappeared from Cape Town areas. And there's been a lot of theory and speculation thrown out there, but actually the science, it's almost like the science has struggled to keep up with the situation. So each year Shark Week comes back and we, you know, we've been covering sort of aspects of it, but this time, you know, we were really allowed to go out as an all-girl team and, and, and sort of try and pick up the pieces of the puzzle. Um, and so, yeah, we started off in Hansbach. So Lee mentioned her master's work there with the uh, the isotopes in False Bay, False Bay being very close, well, being Cape Town. So Hansbach is just down the coast. It's about, say, 100 miles or so east. And uh, we started off at Dyer Island. So basically trying to look at the the site where I've done most of the white shark research. And, and I guess where most of, yeah, a lot of shark week shows have been filmed around Dyer Island, right? With the hunting strategies of great whites with the breaching behavior. And so we decided that's where we're going to start. That's our ground zero. And we're going to see, first of all, can we get any detections on our underwater receivers downloaded to verify if white sharks have been through? So, yeah, after doing that, I mean, Lee and I did the receiver dive. Um, and then Zanz, actually, she went in the water to see in the kelp forest regions if there's any other additional prey species, basically trying to piece together the whole story of if the white sharks aren't around, why? And Zan is your teammate, Zandile Undulovu, who is an incredible freediver. And I know she helped you out a lot on this mission. Uh, and looking from a prey component, Zanz was sort of the eyes underwater in the kelp forest to see, well is there a healthy, flourishing population of other species of sharks that may well be prey for them? Uh, and Lee, Lee and I were purely looking for data at the beginning. So when we got the receiver out of the water, it was literally like, okay, have we got white shark detections? Um, and that's from acoustic tags that we deploy on the great whites. Uh, and we could see we did, but the detections were very transient. So it's in and out. The great whites are not hanging around and it supports all of our observations for the last couple of years. Well, take us through that last couple of years because, you know, if people haven't seen it in the media, what has been going on? Because for a a lot of people, they'll just associate, you know, South Africa in general, but your particular area with great whites and they have been scarce or disappearing. Is that correct? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've been based in hands by studying great whites for the last well, white sharks in the last 15 years. And we always had, let's say, about five to 10 white sharks per trip on average um, comfortably throughout the year. And post 2017, 
that tr- like dramatically changed. Uh, it wasn't a gradual decline. It wasn't as if the sighting started to get less and less over time. Literally, the sharks vanished and then vanished again, and it just kept on going, like this really abrupt disappearance. Um, and that was right in sync with the arrival of killer whales, not just any killer whales, killer whales with a specific select hunting strategy for sharks. Um, so I guess for me, it was really nice because I've now teamed up with cetacean specialists that I never worked with before because we were studying such different you know, areas of, of ocean ecology. Like their, their killer whales in South Africa were predominantly offshore and not coastal. And now all of a sudden here they are. So we've been doing a lot of overlapping our expertise, let's say. But yeah, these killer whales came in and they caught havoc in hands by they um yeah they yeah. they hunted the white shark now, and what was that particular hunting technique like uh, obviously they're going after white sharks but how are they achieving that so they're ripping them open and they're extracting their liver and yeah, mm. yeah exactly as lee said she studied her seven girls in false bay before they arrived in hands by and started doing that here they were actually doing it in False Bay in 2015 already. Um, and Lee actually came up from a dive. In fact, I'll let you, you talk about that later, Lee. But um, she, she saw the evidence there and, and in its, in its raw, like, rarity. Like, so basically from 2017 onwards, uh, the killer whales started coming through. We ended up with white shark carcasses on the beach. Um, shark Week covered it. But since then, it's not been the same. And so now, fast forward to 2022, you know, we've just got a year with no great white sharks in hands by. So there's a lot of questions as to where they are. And I guess shark women, uh, even though the title has been given as ghosted by white sharks, it's quite the contrary. We were seeking and looking and found white sharks, but the answer as to where they've gone to was really what was leading the investigation. And uh, what did the, the data from the receivers actually tell you? So, yeah, it told us that the sharks aren't really hanging around, whereas prior to 2017, they would be spending time at the Dyer Island system, hunting the seals, using the inshore reefs. And these sharks that we saw on the receivers were just zipping in and out, super skittish. It it wasn't like they were sticking around. Um, So, yeah, we put all of the evidence together from the last couple of years, knowing that the sightings further down the coast of great white sharks have been much more reliable. And we called a a fellow researcher in Muscle Bay. And Muscle Bay has also become really well known on the, the Shark Week map. Um, so we we went we basically followed the sharks east, if you will, and, and decided that Mossel Bay would be the next logical place to go and have a look for one of the the missing white sharks from Handsby. And there was actually six in particular that we were looking for that are, are fund animals of mine. I mean, we've got a whole population here that's basically vanished, so six seemed a reasonable number to keep the viewers, I guess, engaged with the story. And actually, it's six of my my all time favourite sharks. So. So, yeah, and we had a report that one was in Mossel Bay, so it just made complete sense to go and try further down the coast. Okay, so you've got orcas that are feeding on great whites and they're hunting them and, you know, scaring them, spooking them out of the area. But you're in an area with, you know, high turbidity, low visibility and sharks that are, correct me if I'm wrong, but hunting solitarily. So how is that message getting out to the sharks that, oi, we all need to bug out and go somewhere else because there's orcas hunting us? Oh, look, it's a great question. And it's, it's still the question. It's still the question of the hour. Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's a very high likelihood that when the white shark carcasses or dead shark carcasses, they actually, the killer whales in South Africa aren't just hunting great whites and seven gills. They're also hunting bronze whaler sharks and probably a plethora of other species that we don't know of. The fact is we only see the carcasses that wash out. So we know that there's more of them down there on the seabed. Rotting shark carcass delivers necromones into the water, which is basically the scent of death. So probably on a localized scale, we have got that. So and we know that sharks have incredible sense of smell. So if they buzz on into the area that they know, 
and they smell they're deceased, they're not going to hang around. But that again is localized and it's probably on a temporal scale not going to be, you know, the, the ruling factor as to why they don't come back for so, so long. Um, so then the question is, can it be vocal? You know, we, we're not talking about one white shark leaving, we're talking about them all scattering and disappearing at once. So is it is it audio? Do the killer whales vocalize? Um, are the sharks able to hear that? And then that's a signal to get out of there. Obviously, some of them succumbing to the killer whales before they even know what's hit them. Uh, is it visual or just trauma from being physically chased around? I mean, if you think of killer whales being the wolves of the ocean, how they hunt white sharks with no question about it, and they chase them all over, and they, they, like they basically go after shark after shark after shark until they minesweep the area out, and it's not just two of them doing it. So... That's the situation. And I guess any terrestrial predator would not stick around uh, if that was happening. But I guess every species has their own response rate. But white sharks are pretty adamant not to come back for a while. Yeah. Lee, what are you seeing? I, I know that you do a lot of diving in those waters there. Um, have you seen any changes in the behavior of the sharks that you encounter? So, unfortunately, in places like False Bay, which is where I'm based in Cape Town, um, we haven't seen great whites for a very long time. I have recently come across seven gills, but they've completely left the aggregation site where we used to find them. So, as Ali mentioned earlier, back in 2015, some divers reported a lot of shark carcasses at the bottom of a site called Miller's Point, which was historically a massive aggregation site for seven gills. We, you could go dive there and see almost 70 sharks at a time. It was absolutely incredible. And bear in mind, these aren't small sharks. They can reach just over three meters. So they, they're big animals. And one day, we just got four carcasses. And myself and another guy went and um, did a dive. And we brought up a carcass. And as we got onto the boat, it could we had hardly got our gear off. We just saw this animal moving towards us and it was starboard one of the orcas that swam right underneath our boat so this was uh, and then well we did the necropsies after that and exact same um it it was first thought that it was fishermen because the cut was so clean down the center of the seven gill it looked like it was done with a knife like with such precision liver out but what really gave it away one kind of caught in the act when the orca swam underneath our boat and secondly on the uh, with the necropsies there was distinct um, teeth marks on each uh, pectoral fin which looked to be um, with we consulted with cetacean specialists and they said that that's orca dentition so yeah it's it's quite um it's not great <laughs> going to sites where you're used to seeing these animals in massive numbers and now they, they're just no longer there. This was 2015. It's a long time ago. And the seven gills just have not returned to that site. Very big shift in the, the ecosystem and how it works. So where white sharks used to aggregate in the winter months around Seal Island hunting seals, white sharks are no longer there. They haven't been seen for a long time. But now Seven gills and bronze whalers are taking over that space. And people who have worked in that area for 20 plus years say when the white sharks are there, there's no other sharks. So it's it's interesting to see the change in the dynamic and the fact that um, every time port and starboard are seen in False Bay, 
there is also a disappearance of the seven gills. It extends beyond the white sharks, as Ali has already mentioned. And also for us, we do still see sharks around, but it's not consistent. There's no real pattern anymore. Yeah. It's um, it's all controlled by the presence of port and starboard, yeah. really. Um, so is there a working theory on to why port and starboard are there? Is it like a... a a sea change thing or a temperature thing or is it just a couple of rogue orcas who are just causing all this damage? No, it's, it's definitely not. So there's an updated killer whale review paper now coming out in South Africa. The last one it was in 2010 and since then the changes in killer whale composition coastal are just really, really, really interesting. So we never had killer whales this coastal before in such numbers and specifically this offshore rare morpho type that are known to be shark specialists. The other problem with killer whales is they learn really quick. So they have something called cultural transmission that happens within their uh, groups. So a specialist strategy like ripping a shark open and taking its liver can be transferred very quickly throughout our population. And unfortunately, we've now just realized that's going on in South Africa. So it's not just port and starboard. Paper on that's been accepted and is, is about to come out around about the same time this airs on Shark Week, well, the footage anyway. So yeah, we can talk about it and it's um, it, there is no clear cut answer, but, but possibly the killer whales have come in from offshore because of lack of prey out there. So I don't know if you remember, Luke, you've done some interviews with me in the past and there's been this talk about demersal longliners and about that being driving factors behind why the white sharks have disappeared from the Cape. And absolutely, we do believe that overfishing is probably connected, in fact, very likely connected to, to this whole story, but it's mostly likely connected to the killer whales as, a, as opposed to the direct reason the sharks abandoned the Cape. And, and, and consequently, all of it plays into the idea that, you know, humans have impacted the oceans to cause this. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I'm curious. Do you know, it may be an unanswerable question, but can one killer whale take out a great white or does it take several of them? Like, I'm trying to imagine how they use their dentition to actually just make clean cuts to get a liver out. It seems like you'd need a buddy to hang on to him <laughs> while that's happening, right? Yeah, I, I mean, Lee will probably agree with this. I mean, she saw just starboard, but it, it definitely takes two to tango. I mean, a white shark's a big animal. To be able to manipulate it onto its back, to asphyxiate it and give it tonic immobility to kill it, you, you know, it's hard to do it with just one. Even though they're big animals themselves, the killer whales, I think that they do rely on that teamwork. So... You know, each animal grabs onto a pectoral fin and then they, they, they swim away and they tear the shark open. What's what's quite interesting to see, and I, I don't want to give too much away, but from that footage, it, it, it almost looks like starboard is um, supervising while the others do it. So it's, it's, it's incredible to see how quickly they learn from each other. Um, but yes, the tonic immobility is an incredibly clever strategy. As soon as that shark is flipped upside down, it goes into like a sleep-like state. And, and that's true for, for most, if not all, shark species. So as soon as it's essentially immobilized, it makes it a lot easier to handle that animal. So as Ali said, each of them grabs a pectoral fin, swim away, and it just tears open. And I think that's why that cut is so clean that it almost looks like it's been done with the precision of a knife. It's actually torn open. That, you just painted a really clear picture for me now. So if we imagine that, you know, this medieval times and we've got two horsemen tying a rope onto someone's arms, which in this case are the pectoral fins, then they're charging away. And essentially you're describing just the belly splitting open from the tension that's being applied. Is that right? So they're not using their teeth at all? No. So the teeth are just used to hold on. And so when we did the necropsies, you could see that the, the huh. teeth marks in the pectoral fins, which does further prove that that um, 
that is likely. And then now that we've got footage to show it, um, it, it confirms what we thought to be true. You, you don't really want to believe it because you think, sure, it's quite, yeah, it's quite gory, brutal. actually. It, it really, <laughs> So <laughs> you're doggly. I hope you didn't hear that. My cat just smacked my dog. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I was going to say, right on cue, something's getting torn apart back out there. Shame. <laughs> it actually sounds oddly similar to the sounds an orca makes, but that was the cat getting upset yeah. with the dog. Sorry. I love it. So uh, I think we've covered the orcas pretty well, and now I know that I – one thing left in life is to see that happen. We a, a predation like that, seeing that split apart. My God, that has to be witnessed. Uh, have you guys ever seen that? No, uh, spoilers so are okay. You can tell. It's me. crazy to see. I mean, we've seen a lot of sharks hunting seals, and you look at that and you think that's quite brutal, and that it doesn't get too much more hectic than that. And then when you hear what the orcas are doing to the sharks, um, it makes a predation on a seal not look so bad anymore. Yeah. Uh, I mean, seal predations are brutal. And I think you guys uh, actually have one. I've, you've probably seen many, but I know there's at least one on your show. And it's, it's brutal, it's bloody, but, you know, it's over after a while. Um, and not really too bad. But, Alison, where, if, if we've got the presence of the orcas, they're driving the sharks out. You guys obviously found some sharks. Where are they going? Yeah, so again, you're asking all the good questions, Luke. It's almost like I say the science <laughs> really struggles to keep up, but certainly it seems to be that we're getting an uptick east in South Africa. So while we're getting traditionally here, always Cape Town, False Bay, Hans by Dyer Island were classed as the epicenter of the white sharks distribution. That's now shifted. Mussel Bay became very much the, the main focal area. And now ah, if you just look at the eastern Cape of South Africa at the moment, I'm you know, post the killer whales making a direct predation in, uh, in Mussel Bay just recently, plenty of white sharks. So it's dynamic, it's moving, it's changing all the time. But um, but certainly east seems to be the way to go if you want to come across your best chances of seeing a white shark in South Africa. And when I say east, I mean um, areas like, for example, J-Bay, where they're just holding the World Surf League competition right now, Flettenberg Bay, um, and, and East London, areas like that, where the sardine run's happening and there's there's an abundance of food. Now, as, as those great whites might be moving east, Lee do... Like, okay, let's sort of extrapolate this. You know, we're talking that now they're kind of east, but not really that far in the scope of things. But, you know, five, ten years' time, if they are continually being driven and chased, is there a point at which the food of the great whites, the, you know, their target food, the seals and stuff, uh, they kind of run out? Like, where are those populations of animals? So, white sharks have a very diverse diet. Um, we obviously always look at the hunting of the seals because it's big, it's exciting, but it's only it only forms a, a portion of their diet and only really for sub-adult and adult great white sharks. So whereas juveniles, uh, sharks will typically eat fish and other shark species and as they grow a little bit bigger, or they, then only do they start hunting seal. So White sharks will move and um, eat anything they can come across. Another huge, huge thing for white sharks is whale carcasses. If they can come across a whale carcass, it can sustain them for a, a very long time. So having a diverse diet is 
very good for the sharks and their ability to adapt and hopefully survive this because as they move along the coastline, there's no real shortage of food. So that's the upside for them. I don't think food shortage will be an issue. However, Cape fur seal is a very, very nutritionally rich food for sub-adult and adult great white sharks. So um, they won't be getting one of their favorites, but... um, I'm pretty confident that they'll still be able to sustain themselves with what is available in our very abundant waters. I think the fear is more the ecological impact of losing an apex predator in places where you have seal colony because they control the structure and function of that ecosystem. So without your white sharks, your seal populations expand. And we're already seeing that. This isn't even, you know, something you would think would happen over a long period of time. It's already happening. There are plenty Cape fur seals. Cape fur seals eat pilchard, sardine, other fish, fish that the penguins rely on, fish that bigger fish rely on, fish that we rely on. So now all of a sudden you've got extra pressure on the fish populations. Ultimately, the fish populations will take strain, collapse, then your seals are without food, your big fish are without food, sharks without food, and we're going to struggle for food. And I think the African penguin is going to take the biggest knock in the long run. So Because the penguins rely on the, the fish, right? Yes, for sure. And yeah. what, what I think it's not so much that we're too concerned about the great whites surviving, or, or not, or let me put it this way, not finding food as they move. It's more about losing them in really important ecosystems, what are the long-term implications for those ecosystems? Uh, let's give put some numbers to this, and perhaps I, I don't know, Alison. This might be a question for you. But when you talk about the the seal populations expanding, like what are they currently? What are they increasing to? Because uh, I think those the the sheer numbers might surprise some people. Yeah, I think what's really important to consider, I mean, the Cape Fur seal populations in South Africa are extremely healthy. Dyer Island, I mean, it's quoted between forty-five to 50,000. Seal Island, False Bay, I think also around the 60,000 mark, Haley. Yeah, it's um, quite high. There's, there's no shortage of seals. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's 60,000 seals on on an island that's not that big, right? That, that's resident populations on the colonies. And now if you look at, I mean, I guess maybe some sharkweed viewers might not even know this, but South Africa has its own species of penguin, the African penguin. It's critically endangered. So experts give it maybe 10 years at most before it could possibly be extinct because the numbers are so, so low and they just keep declining due to prey removal, due to climate pressures. Um, we, they can't afford any more predation pressure from, you know, overabundant seal populations or competition for food. So, yeah, it's, it is a really sinister situation. And I guess it shows us inadvertently just how important it is to have white sharks around. So are the, are the seals also predating on the penguins then? They are, yeah. They, um, they're performing more bold and risky behaviour because they've got no, no fear or risk curbing their, their distribution and their, uh, and their movement. So they're just hanging out off of like areas like Dyer Island. And after one day, we, I think we picked up like seven dead African penguins that had just had their stomachs ripped out by the Cape fur seals. So even if it's you know not really sustaining the fur seal population to do that, they're doing it anyway. And it's because you know, there's too many of them and they're too bold. It's, it's all about balance. 
Yeah. And when you say, uh, so the numbers, uh, you know, 60,000 in a seal colony, has that increased maybe by 10% or 20% since, you know, 2017 when the sharks started to deplete? Um, I don't think there's any percentage increase that I can quote directly, but I'm... <laughs> I'm just sure, sure. From, if if I'm talking about the effects directly on the penguins, the seals are definitely more abundant. So what, again, we need to. Yeah. I mean, the, anecdotally, they're growing, and also their behaviour is changing in a detrimental way to everything else around it. Exactly, and I mean this, the different seal colonies along the coast of South Africa. I mean, every single one of them is really healthy, right? Ach, though, but remember, Lee, as well, we did have the die off of Cape Fur seals now last year, which took a lot of seals out of the western colonies. So maybe the ocean does have its way also of balancing things out, but certainly that that prolonged hanging around colonies when they're not supposed to be doing that's that's really a, a, a very impactful factor in a ecosystem that wouldn't usually have it for um particularly the dire island ecosystem okay so we're, we're moving up east we're looking for the great white going up east and, and looking at the sardine run and this is something that i've always dreamed about i i will be over there shortly to go and see this but i'd never thought about great whites being in that mix that seems really unusual yeah, I mean, it's something that we've tried to get for years, uh, the footage of, of, of white sharks on the sardine run, because technically everything's there, Luke, to entice a white shark to be around from a predatory perspective. But it is, it's really just underwater chaos. It's the biggest migration of, you know, marine um biomass uh, that rivals the the african wildebeest on the you know on the plains of africa so it's a huge movement of fish it's huge amounts of food huge amounts of predators but really hard to find white sharks in amongst it all because there's just so much going on underwater and often quite challenging conditions so yeah we were stoked to to locate a white shark up there on, on and we genuinely did like the micro light footage that you see of me in the air i promise you i know sometimes we we might dr- dramatize things a bit for viewership a little bit for some of the shows this was 100% genuinely a white shark on the sardine run. Yeah. It wasn't clear from the footage how close in context it was to the sardine run. Do you think it was kind of like just biding its time and hanging out on the outside or was it just belly full, just chilling? It was right there, very close to sardine action mm. and Lee and Zans were on the action. So it was actually quite harrowing because it, I guess I suppose when we came back down, we, we landed near the harbour and that afternoon people on the harbour had reported seeing a white shark uh, coming on in on the inside of the, the jetty wall. So we, it possibly could have been the same animal. But yeah, it was close to the action and pretty close to where Lee and Zans were getting in the water. Um, so now that you've you know established that there's sort of white sharks moving over east, Alison, what is the next step for you in your research? Do you continue to focus on the white sharks? Yeah, I mean, it would be really silly now to abandon ship with them because there's now, with all research, when you answer questions, a whole bunch more questions are presented. And now for me, it's imperative to really understand where of these sort of localised aggregation hotspots shifted to, not only from an ecological perspective, but obviously for bather safety. Um, in, in Cape Town, back in 2006, there was a specialised workshop that got held by various stakeholders and government because there was a spate of bite incidents in the Cape from white sharks, some fatal, and they really needed to handle the situation and the shark spotters programme was developed and all these different bather safety mechanisms. So we don't have all that much of that up in East Cape of South Africa and, and that now really needs to be watched very carefully because there are human repercussions if we've all of a sudden got white sharks shifting into areas that there's many bathers and, and little warning. So understanding the, the movements of the white sharks, how 
you know, how this is going to play out. Obviously, the ecological side of things, Reigns president, you know, the, the ecosystem impacts need to be need to be balanced before this this becomes yeah, really, really, really profound. Um, and of course, there's economic impacts as well. So certainly follow what the White Sharks are doing. If we had more access to funding, I think I, say, I said this on the last podcast with you, you know, Shark Week are one of the only funding mechanisms we have. You know, these film crews coming down and giving us the resources to put satellite tags on individuals. It's almost unaffordable in South Africa and the government don't sponsor shark research. It's privately raised funds. So, yeah, absolutely keep tabs on what the White Sharks are doing more now than ever. But also uh, uh, collaborative um, research with other species and, 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 and the, the fact that government now have science that they can use, predictively model the seasonality of the killer whales and try and try and work out some kind of strategy to mitigate impacts on the sharks and the, and the ecosystems. There's a lot, Luke. Yeah. To say where's this going, I think it's only <laughs> just started, to be honest. So. Well, where's it going? It just keeps going, doesn't it? But that yeah. you actually bring up a, an interesting point that, Lee, perhaps you can speak to because now you do have these two very large, you know, apex species but also very publicly visible, you know, beloved species, you know, facing off against each other. But now the opportunity for researchers from both camps to kind of work together. Do you think that having the cetaceans and the shark researchers working together will, you know, help stimulate some of that uh, government interest that will lead to more findings? So we, we can only hope so, like, um, but as Ali said, <laughs> yeah. it is very difficult in South Africa trying to get funding for these kinds of things. Um, but but hopefully, if, if they start to recognize particularly the ecological impact that extends, again, like Ali said, beyond just the ecological, there's an economic aspect to it too. So you often have to play that card as well to get the funding. So... As long as we can try get these people to understand that not only long term, we're already seeing these effects, we need to find solutions. And one of the only ways to get to that point is to have the funding to do the research so we can understand what we're dealing with and find potential solutions. But Ali said earlier, the difficulty is the science just can't keep up with what's happening out there. Everything is going on and happening so quickly that we science just takes so long to get through peer review like our study took five years reviewers are like no hang on that can't be and we're like but it is happening but you don't have enough evidence it's like well how much you need we've had <laughs> eight dead white sharks that we know of and yeah it's it's been tough so international intervention may also be a part of this i think a lot of the people in the world now are looking at south africa and i've had a lot of outreach from the states actually saying we're watching down there we can't believe what's going on you know obviously off the u.s you've got really healthy white shark populations that are rebounding same with australia down in south africa we can't afford to lose any more great whites our, our stocks aren't healthy 30 of them at least a year are killed in the bay the protection nets off natal KZN, um, of durban so phew, fisheries human impacts already on the white sharks then we've got killer whales it's it needs it needs some international intervention and and there are some nice collaborative uh, work, workshops ongoing about the uh, the ecological role of sharks and how to how to try and strategize this whole situation well that is a good thing about shark week isn't it because we can come down for a couple of weeks make a great film get it exposed to millions and millions and millions of people and come up with conclusions that don't necessarily have to wait for the publish or perish cycle to happen and and maybe stimulate a bit of uh, external influence and uh, and funding for you guys so, absolutely um, but i mean I do want to talk about that show very briefly in the sense of what you managed to put together um 
you know, I, I'm very passionate about women getting involved in science and you've done kind of a, I don't know if it's the first, but it was certainly an inspirational all women show. What does it mean to you to be able to put that together and what was the kind of most memorable thing about it? It was a first in that it was the first time that South African women were hosts on Shark Week, like lead hosts. So that's mm. that's a big first. True. We get a lot of internationals come down and film for Shark Week that aren't doing research in South Africa or aren't South African. So to me, it was always a dream. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass this on to Lee because, you know, just quickly about Lee. <laughs> She's deserved this for so long. And the work that she does, I guess it just hasn't had that kind of exposure. And I'm so glad now that, that she's had that opportunity. And and of course, we got to we got to experience Zanz. I'm really sad that Zanz wasn't able to be on the podcast, but she is on the sardine run right now filming her nice. own show. Zan is, of course, Zandile Undalovu. Uh, she's an incredible freediver. So, but Lee, Lee, you feel exactly the same, yes, right? Uh, Lee, do tell us about Zanz as well. Eh? <laughs> oh, Zanz is amazing. She's just incredible in the water, so comfortable, so at home. And for somebody that hasn't, she, she never saw a white shark before the show. So that was one of the highlights is showing Zanz a white shark and her reaction to it is, is absolutely priceless. Um, she really is a magnificent human being and she, she's doing some really good things in the world. Not only, what's, what's the word? She's trying to create diversity in ocean spaces. So to allow people from all backgrounds, women, children, men from all, col- all colors, all races to be introduced to the ocean space because particularly in South Africa, there's this fear associated with the ocean and lack of resources for education to understanding what the ocean is about. And she makes it more accessible to everyone, really. So really amazing and inspiring getting to work with her. Uh, and Lee, what, is, what does being on this show mean to you? I mean, obviously, you have a very distinguished uh, history so far with research, but being front and center of a show like this has got to be life-changing. Well, for me, it was it was really incredible when Alison told me about it. And this was, this was a while ago when she brought it up. I was like, ooh, me? Am I worthy of this? And she seemed to think that I was. And it it's just incredible being able to share what we have in our South African waters. Um, the diversity we have here is amazing. It's very dynamic. It's always changing. Getting to share it, but also getting to share it with, with women, with um, ladies who I connect with on a deeper level, who have the same goals and aspirations and passion around the ocean and for conservation, it's it's really quite meaningful. And when you're filming a show like this, especially your first one, as it as it was for me, naturally you're nervous because because we're not actresses, <laughs> we're scientists. <laughs> but from day one, I was so comfortable because I just had to do what I do what I do share what I know to the best of my ability. It Everything was so easy and authentic. And I think that was largely thanks to Alison and Zanz and just the connection we have to each other, but also to the ocean. But yeah, South African woman sharing information on South African sharks, what an adventure, what a privilege. And um, I really hope that we'll be able to do more of it. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can go on forever on what it means to me, but I might have a cry. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, 
you guys are jumping in the water with great white sharks in low visibility, collecting data, tagging, spearing, swimming, free diving. You guys are badasses. Yeah, women can be hardcore too, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, the show is Shark Women Ghosted by Great Whites. Uh, I immensely enjoyed it. It's definitely one of my favorite Shark Weeks this year. So everyone, you have to check it out. And that wraps up another episode of Shark Week, the podcast. I want to thank Alison and Lee for joining us. We are definitely going to get Zans on in a future episode because I really want to chat with her. Thank you both for your time today. All right, wraps up another episode of Shark Week, the podcast. Stay tuned to this feed for more interviews with shark experts that'll give us the behind-the-scenes scoop on what really happens out at sea. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening to Shark Week, the podcast. Be sure to rate us five stars and subscribe for more shark fun facts. I'm Luke Tipple. I'll see you next time.